Welcome to Field Trials Unleashed, where we talk about agronomic trials, products, practices, and what that means to your farm's profitability. Hello, and welcome to the launch of our podcast, uh, Field Trials Unleashed. I'm your host, Craig Blumker, and with me is co-host Eric Beckett. How's it going, Craig? Another beautiful rainy day in central Illinois. Uh, I guess we can welcome the rain. but I'll uh, take it. Yeah, give us a little more time to prepare for the upcoming season here. But Eric, I would say we had uh, maybe similar backgrounds. Uh, I know that I attended Parkland, and I think you did as well. Would yeah. you uh, Would you tell a little bit about your background, kind of where you came from? Yep, so that's right, Craig. So um, I'm from the area, grew up in Monticello, currently live in, in Philo. And uh, as far as my education goes, I uh, started out at Parkland. And uh, then from Parkland, then I moved down to Southern Illinois University down at Carbondale and uh, graduated from there. And uh, since then, and while in college, um, I've had uh, quite a few different uh, roles uh, within agronomy research, whether it's in seed production or uh, in pesticide um, discovery and uh, just general agronomy. And then so then. Everything that I've done up to this point has prepared me for my current role with IFS, which is a field sales agronomist. The best role. The best role. The yeah. one I've been looking for for a long time. No, we're glad to have you. So uh, what what did you major in while you were down at SIU? So um, all along I've majored in, uh, in crop science, and uh, you could probably say maybe with an emphasis on um, crop protection. Okay, very good. Yeah, so um, Eric, appreciate you sharing that. And then, like I said, I attended two years at Parkland and got my associates. And uh, while I was going to Parkland, I had a little bit of a chance to intern with Bayer Crop Sciences. So I also have kind of a, uh, a research background, although probably not as extensive as Eric. But uh, it did pique my interest in, you know, field trials and, and research. So um, after that I had an opportunity to come to Line IFS and where I interned with them for a season as well and found my fit here as a, a sales agronomist. Um, so I'd be a certified crop advisor and then also a 4R nutrient management specialist. So let's go ahead and kick the show off here. I guess uh, the first, this being the first episode and kind of where we want to take this thing and what we want to talk about. So, you know, as I been stewing on this for probably two years and then when eric came to work for line ifs decided now is the time we've got the momentum with the on-farm discovery um, trials that we're doing with our customers and so i want to take that opportunity launch this podcast with eric and so uh, i think the vision i had for this thing was to basically just talk about field trials you know what we're doing with the the customer base what we're kind of seeing in the industry really most important thing is the ROI to the growers. Definitely. Yeah. And, and, uh, from time to time, Craig, I'm probably going to throw a little bit of agronomy updates in there just to kind of keep us all abreast of, uh, maybe current trends and, uh, what I'm seeing on going on out in the field. No, it'll keep it interesting. So I don't know that this is a quote per se, but you know, Eric and I sat in several meetings recently and there was a general quote that kind of captured my attention. It says, we aren't trying to create a demand for a product but rather finding solutions to problems that already exist on our farms. And so, you know, I think that kind of summarizes what we're trying to do with on-farm discovery and really what we want to talk about on this podcast. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that that's a big part of my job every day is trying to find solutions to current problems. And so, I mean, I just had some conversations this morning uh, with a current supplier 
about uh, some new possibilities for some solutions that our growers may not be taking advantage of today. Just not aware? Are they new products on the market or? Um, probably a lot of uh, more so not aware yeah. and just, you know, creating awareness for a lot of things. I mean, uh, I mean, Craig, as you know, I mean, and being in a sales role focused, focused, solely focused on that. I mean, it is somewhat, I'm sure it's easy to get the blinders on. And so that, that is one of my uh, roles here at Illini is to help, you know, take the blinders off everybody for, so to speak, and, yeah. and make everybody aware of, of things that might be out on the marketplace that, you know, might provide a better solution than current standard glow. I guess when I think about, you know, on-farm discovery, the state of where we're at, I guess, I, I think the driving factor maybe behind that is just the universities and the lack of funding of research into production ag. You know, everything's kind of shifted to, uh, what do you would say, bioreactors and yep. sustainability. Yep. So a lot of it is definitely focused to more of the environmental impact, but it's um, it's unfortunate that production agriculture is kind of taking a back seat to um to just everyday education within the university system um, because as as yields increase, we need to find new ways to push those yields. And uh, the universities, for lack of a better, you know, I, I don't want to put down the universities by any means or the Langrant universities because they're still a great resource, but they're just not keeping pace with modern production agriculture. There's a lot of funding and a lot of emphasis on, you know, just the environmental impact. And environmental impact is definitely important too, Um I don't want to de-emphasize that, but, you know, I guess the real goal of this, you know, it's, we're talking about with this podcast is to, you know, how can we increase modern production agriculture with, with some of these new products on the table? You mentioned the, you know, the changing genetics, and I think that opens up a lot of doors to higher yields and, and yield potential. But uh, with that comes a lot of products. There's a lot of, uh, what you should say, non-traditional yield enhancers. So, uh, you know, give us a few examples of, you know, what we could be, uh, approach within the marketplace in that regard. Yeah, so maybe some uh, non-traditional yield enhancers would maybe be some fertilizer use efficiency products that are going to be utilizing some humic and fulvic acids, which are you know maybe they're they're naturally occurring, but we're just amping up that presence within within the soil. Uh, so that might be you know one instance, or another instance would maybe be using more of some uh, PGRs. Um, you know, which are also plant growth regulators are also naturally occurring within the plant. But there again, we're just kind of amplifying it and, and targeting certain plant growth regulators to uh, turn on or turn off different plant functions at, at key times within the plant. Are some are a couple of the, you know, things that come to my mind first of what would, you know, be maybe the non-traditional yield enhancers. Yeah, I was gonna say, well, we'll probably get into this again later. But um, I mean, what do you what do you think as far as what do we look at first? Uh, to me, that's probably not the first thing I'm looking at. You know, I think I always go back to the foundations of agronomy. We need to not get away from that. Yeah, definitely. We never want to take away from the foundations of, of agronomy. I mean, there's absolutely nothing for that will substitute sound, rational agronomy. But I see that there are, there are some good ways and some good entry points into using these non-traditional um yield enhancers and one on one instance i think of that first comes to mind is just the simple seed treatment we've all got to have a seed treatment we seed treatments have been proven and proven over and over again and if a grower is not bought into um a seed treatment well we've got some work to do yeah um but with a seed treatment you know some a product that we that we typically you know we utilize is a pgr and and it's going to help that help with emergence and that may be 
an easy, a really easy place to start with a non-traditional yield enhancer. Yep. No, I agree with you on that. But, uh, you know, so again, just talking about these on-farm discoveries, I think the overall most important message you have is, you know, what kind of return does that bring to the grower? Um, we have to service our growers. So we want to bring the best products possible to you and make sure that we're getting a return for that. Yep, definitely. And making sure that it's just not the flavor of the week or, or that it's a one and done. I mean, we, we are continuing to test products, even though um, some of the successes that we've had over the past few years, we are still continuing to look at new opportunities for those and to really get some of those products dialed in just because simply we don't have good recommendations for some of those products. Yeah, I think, for instance, I don't know what you're referencing, but I, I think of boron right off top. Bingo, you know? right? Where I was yeah. thinking. Yeah. Yeah, we've proved that it works. Now, how much, when do we apply it, what products do we utilize? You know, there's a lot of options there. So I think that leads us right into uh, the next segment that I want to talk about, and that's how to set up a successful field trial. You know, I uh, talked to a lot of growers, and and they may or may not be aware of how to set one up. So, Eric, you've got a little bit of a, I don't want to say non-traditional approach, but you've got a different approach to setting up a field trial than I do. Would you, you know, tell them how you're doing it and tell them a little bit about equipment that you're using? Yep, so definitely. So, um, where Craig, he's kind of referencing when he might set up a field trial, it's, you know, maybe in a 20-acre block, a treated and untreated. But, Really, to make any uh, field trial successful, we need to go back to fifth grade science class. So we need to go back a little bit, and we need to think of just the basic scientific process. You know, we first, we need to establish a question. We need to establish a hypothesis or theory of what the outcome might be. We need to establish a a way to measure, a way of measuring or metrics of how we're going to go about testing our theory or hypothesis. And then, and then we need to quantify it. You know, if it's, you know, yield maybe would, would probably be the easiest way to maybe quantify something. And so, and then within the testing phase, we need to properly test it. We need to accurately represent the area or the product we're testing. So in Craig's case, his accurate area of replication or area of testing may just simply be treated versus untreated. But um, for, for my instance, where, you know, I may be trying to establish a, a good rate for a product, um, we're going to need to have a minimum of a replication plot with a minimum replicated of three times, uh, just so that way we can very rule out any type of field variability or application variability. And then that way, then that kind of gives us a, a prediction of how well that product's going to perform over time. I think that's great. And like, uh, you know, Eric's, Eric mentioned that, uh, you know, my approach and what I've been in the last three or four years has been on a more large scale approach with utilizing our, you know, just our standard operators and, and machines that we would use for any other operation uh, like spraying fields. So we've got 120 foot booms and we're using large scale equipment. So really easy for me to slip in, spray 20 acres and then have, you know, roughly 20 acres untreated to compare to. But I mean, I think they can work in tandem. I think they, that's our end game is they are going to work in tandem. So, yep. you know, I think you do, we go bring in the product, we test it through your small scale, identify rates, and we validate the product and say, hey, this is a viable option for our growers, the returns there. Yep, definitely. And and then just to kind of tell over our viewers a little bit about the equipment that I might be using or the service that I might be able to provide that if it doesn't make sense to do a large scale blocks or that we, we do, we need to take advantage of doing some uh, small replicated. We we've um, recently took a, um, a John Deere Gator that a lot of people are familiar to having. A lot of people have them on their farms, but we've kind of taken that John Deere Gator to the next step. We've uh, outfitted it with a dry application. 
uh, rig and then also a uh, sprayer. So we, and then also along with that, then we also have the mapping capabilities to where, you know, we could, I could slip into a field, um, apply a product, whether it's liquid or dry and map it and then not even interfere with any of the farmers or our normal operations and quickly effectively get in and out. And, and then also, you know, just to, um, take out any variability. We've also outfitted it with uh, with an auto track system, so that way we can be just as precise and and and, and capture all the information that a normal sized uh, rig might capture going across the field. We just go out and put these trials out and just forget them for the year. Is that is that how we do it? Or yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs> so so in, so within you know establishing the metrics of how we're going to measure success. Um, a lot of times we need to do some in-field, in in-season valuation. So that might be some uh, soil testing with our new Tracker Plus program, which if you've been around Alliance FS at all, you pro- you've pro- probably heard Dr. Brown speak about the new Tracker Plus and all the benefits and everything that can bring to us from doing deep core uh, soil testing to see to get a better understanding of how those nutrients might work out throughout the soil. Um, another good me- uh, metrics that's also going to be uh, embedded with the new tracker plus is also tissue testing. So a lot of times with these micronutrients that we might apply or, or really any product, it's sometimes it's a good thing to kind of establish a baseline before we apply the product. And then, oh, and then um, depending on the product, we may want to come back maybe as soon as a week after application to measure did how, how well did that nutrient or product move into the plant and did, did the plant show a response? But um, there's also much less invasive uh, ways, so to speak, that we could measure in season. And then that is with uh, capturing drone or uh, satellite imagery and capturing that imagery to also measure a response to a product. Yeah, I was going to say, I've got my drone's license. I think you have yours. And Oh, yeah. Uh, how, many, how many do we have here at Align IFS? I think we're, we're getting close to that 10 number. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So a lot of drones on hand, and I think we just acquired a, a fixed wing. Yep, yep. So so keep so all our listeners should keep an eye out for that. Um, we we do with our capabilities with our uh, fixed wing. That's going to allow us to fly more acres uh, much quicker and just cover you know ground much more efficiently than what you can with a quadcopter. Because um, I don't know if anybody's really had any much experience with a uh, fixed wing. Eisters didn't before this winter, but. Um, we had that thing out the other day, and it was it was doing about fifty mile an hour. Yeah, it's humming right along, isn't it? Yeah, whereas opposed to our quadcopter, I don't know what yours will fly at, but mine's a, when we're doing imagery about ten miles an hour is about max speed what it flies at. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't want to get too much more than that. You know, the stability of it can be questionable at that rate. But uh, you know, the other thing that we're I don't I I think some may discount the value of it, but is the uh, satellite imagery, the field health maps coming from something like Climate Field View or or farm shots, or uh, there's there's a multitude of services out there, but uh, I still think you know those are going every day that they're flying over. That's not cloudy. We're capturing some pretty good imagery there. Yep. So definitely. So uh, satellite imagery is definitely a reliable standby. To you know, it's it's always going to be making that orbit over that field, and every time it goes over that field, capturing imagery. Now, clouds they're 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 a pesky little bugger. They they get in the way from time <laughs> to time. So. Uh, we got to play ball with them, and sometimes they get in the way. But definitely, satellite imagery is definitely a reliable, you know, method, and and should always be, you know, considered. Yeah, yeah. And then the final, the final metric is uh, getting that yield data from the growers. So, uh, you know, I I don't venture into this a lot, but I we've kind of shifted gears here. I work a lot with growers that have 
definitely have the ability to capture yield data, but uh, preferably with Climate Field View. And uh, I think you mentioned with your equipment earlier, you're set up to map everything with Climate Field View as well. Yep, yep. So my small scale rig is also set up. And then and then even if um, we're not utilizing some small equipment and say we're using the farmer's equipment and he may not be set up, we, we do have some other options that we can still map with climate. It's just not as clean, but um, by all means, we're going to make every effort to probably map something with, with climate just because of the ease. I mean, I don't want this to turn into a commercial for climate field view, but their system has just made it so easy to, to map applications or, or really a lot of field activities for that matter. Yeah, no, and I think you said, I, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, there is accommodations for growers that don't have the ability or don't want to invest in that technology at this moment. So, um, you know, we talked a little, uh, we talked quite a bit about, uh, you know, setting up a trial and all that we can offer doing these on-farm discoveries. And that is our approach every time. We're trying to go out there, officially put a trial out. Uh, we want to map as much as possible so we can go back and identify those areas later. We're going to follow up with visual checks, tissue sampling, as, you know, Eric mentioned the imagery from either a drone or from satellite. Um, so these are all the things that we're doing on a standard basis to validate our products. Now, I want to talk a little bit, maybe how not to set up a trial. You know, some of the things we run into, and I'm just like, ah, that's questionable of a way to validate a trial. You know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so um, I guess just I'm going to clear the air right here and uh, say that we're going to we're going about it in line fs a little bit differently than maybe some of the other retailers in the area that might be going about on farm discovery i agree yep so so have you seen the latest sign between philo and tolono i have not yet <laughs> yep so there's another innovation farm going up oh is this the nutrient yeah it's the nutrient yeah. one okay so so many of our grower growers or listeners might have noticed that um the few retailers in the area have got their own innovation farms now while um, research, it can be a very, you know, it's very important and uh, to have control of the area. But um, for certain aspects of research, um, you can get, so to speak, artifacts from the previous year's treatments. And so you get, you get carryover treatment effects if you continually go back on small plots um, and you get treatment effects that can show up and just, you know, maybe just simple, simple as a uh, color difference in the crop. Or it can have, you know, lasting effects from, from, from um, maybe say a herbicide application carryover. So it's just the, the possibilities are endless when you go, continually go back on the same piece of ground year after year. So with our on-farm discovery approach is that we, we, try, we target new fields every year. We, we, we keep previous year's data and application maps and refer to those maps. If, you know, if we know we've been in that field previously doing some type of testing, we'll refer back to those maps and make sure not to do anything overlap. Uh, just so we don't get that previous year, take any chances with getting previous year's treatment effect. Yeah, we've talked about this before, Eric, and I know you've got you've got a story, and then I've got my own story. But you know, go ahead and tell them about your your soybean versus corn. Yeah, so with with my previous experience, um, one of my uh, previous work experiences has been working in in seed research. So, um, you know, being working and in a seed specific seed research, I was working in was uh, was corn. And we also rotated with a uh, soybean group. And, uh, you know, the soybean, a lot of times soybean uh, plot lengths may be different than a corn plot length. Uh, and so I've, I've actually seen where because the plot length differences were different from, say, from soybeans to corn, that the corn plot length was longer than the soybean rows. And so the corn went through 
one soybean plot, there was a, a, a gap or an alleyway, and then there was another soybean plot within the same corn plot. And so you would see that carryover effect that, that maybe that, uh, you know, rotational effect or what has maybe previously been known as that soybean credit for nitrogen, there was that carryover. So the corn was green where there was soybean planted the previous year, but then the corn was a much lighter color in, um, in that alleyway and then within small plots or small, small strips that, that just that um, small alleyway that will greatly affect yield. And you will see that in um, how clean or how the quality of data you'll start seeing a lot of eradication or erratic data quality that won't necessarily be explained. Yeah. My story is uh, not quite as scientific, I guess, but uh, yeah, yeah, I just, I went out and we did what we were calling pursuit of maximum yield trials a couple years ago. And I had placed out, I don't know, half a dozen of these trials. And uh, the strip, we put it right down the middle of the field. So I had like an 80 acre field and we put a 20 acre strip, I, I believe is what it was. And, you know, we've referenced the field health imagery and I was looking at that and, and analyzing. And that year it showed up and it showed up on the yield map at the following year, looking at the yield, uh, the uh, field health map again, and it shows up that same strip. And I'm like, wait a second, you know, that, that looks pretty familiar. And I believe it happened one more year after that. But again, going back to the, um, these discovery farms or these research farms, this is something to be very concerned about. If there's treatment effects showing up for years after application, what is that doing for these small replicated plots? Yeah, definitely. So there, I mean, there's definitely going to be some carryover effects. And so, as I mentioned again, this on-farm discovery, our approach is just to work with growers and then not to mention it's growers fields and their data. It's not, it's not our data. And it, it kind of takes out that, that human error or that want to succeed. So maybe take out any of the bias as well too. So we, we want to try to remain as objective and, and unbiased uh, whenever we're going out and doing these trials as, as best as possible as well too. Yeah. And really it all starts from the farmer question. You know, that's, that's the ultimate goal. Now I'm not going to say we haven't done trials because I want to take a look at our product and, you know, offer it up to a grower, but ultimately we want grower engagement and, and looking for their questions where, you know, we're going to try to find solutions to those questions. So, you know, uh, going back to how not to set up trials, so we, you know, identified that maybe these research farms well-intended may not yep. be the best, but, uh, uh, I think about, several conversations I've had through the years. And it's like, we did a trial over here on this field and we treated this field, you know, five miles down the road, exactly the same. And I didn't see any yield difference, Craig. What what the heck's going on with your treatment? Yeah. So, I mean, even though fields may be planted on the same day or close to the same day, if, if they're not in the same field, we can't use those just because it just opens ourselves up to so much variability. I mean, how many times, Craig, have you seen it rain on one side of the section and on the other side of the section, the sun, the sun is shining? So well, heck, we've seen that on a road, driving down the road, you see one side wet and the other not. So. Yeah, so just so just that variable right there, just rainfall. I mean, we we just we can't take that into account. There's just there's too many unknowns and you know differences in soil types or just. We also have to consider maybe something as simple as that tillage pass. That if there was a different guy in the tractor, um, how how did he put that piece of equipment in the ground? And maybe even it was something also as simple as which way did he work did he work that ground? Yeah, you know, it, did he get some root balls or something drug? I mean, all those different things. Those are so many un, unknowns that we can't necessarily control. And so that that's that's a good example of why you know maybe we can't use field A and field B as as a as a good comparison. 
it's well-intended, again, you know, well-intended and for general observation. But if you're truly trying to conduct field trials, they, they need to be in the same field, uh, whether it be the small scale with Eric or, again, you know, like a larger scale uh, through me. But uh, they need to be in the same field. So another one of my favorites is I get, uh, Craig, going through the field, I'm looking at my yield monitor, and I don't see anything. Just didn't see anything with the yield monitor. I'm looking at the numbers, and, and so I call that the yield monitor feel-good check. And yeah. <laughs> What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, yeah, while, you know, you may get a good gut feeling, that that right there is going to be a biased opinion. And so really to, um, if, we're, if we're using a, a yield monitor and, and, you know, we're looking at that, and that's great to look at the yield monitor because that's going to give you real time, you know, maybe if something's going on with that combine or, you know, something's going on in the field, you can, that's good real-time information. But really to uh, make a good comparison, we, we need to bring that back into the office and, and run it through, uh, whatever platform you might be using to to, uh, to analyze your field data, we need to bring that into the field because I don't know how many times we, we've seen something, but it maybe only be a bushel or two yield difference between treated and untreated, and you cannot pick that up in a yield monitor. You, you've no. really got to run, bring it in and run your analysis check and let the computer do the work for you in the office. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, if there's our, on rare occasion, do you, does a product – affect yield so greatly that you can, you know, you see an uptick as you're watching the yield monitor. But, uh, you know, like you mentioned, taking it back, kind of going on a granular level. And sometimes we are hunting for two, which is almost impossible to find, but, you know, two to five bushel, that's that's pretty tough to find by just looking at a yield monitor. So, And then the, and the other thing that when we're setting up correct ways of setting up these field trials is that we, we need to just limit it ourselves to a treated versus untreated. If we start adding a lot of different treatment variabilities into the mix of how we're testing a product, that's also going to to make it very difficult to make a prediction or to show good data that it, are we likely to get a yield response. Um, we need to basically, all of our management styles need to be the same except for just one variable and then test that different variable across the field. Um, that's going to provide us the best outcome. Now, I have you, have you seen uh, Dr. Bilo's omission plots? I was getting ready to mention. I was like, man, we're not Dr. Bilo. I, yeah, great admirer of his work. Yep, and, and he's been able to show some great work and some great research. And, and um, we, we, you can't hardly go to a meeting these days, it seems like, without, without maybe Bilo's work maybe being mentioned. But he, he's, you know, with the type of environment and the tools and stuff he, he works with, he's able to do those type of omission plots where you take one product – and then you build on you a systems approach where you take one and then just keep building upon it. And then he was able to, sort of through some of the work, then pull out each one of those products and then be able to maybe assign a value to what that brings to the overall yield. But for for all of our purposes intended, let's just keep with the one product. Yeah, no, I was going to say, use his data as a guideline of some things to be looking at. You know, I, I, I think we can do that, though. Um so another another thing I think about when uh, talking about on-farm discovery, I guess, is the fact of not even testing it. You know, I talk to or hear about growers even that, well, I think that product's going to do well on my farm. So I'm just going to throw it out on the entire farm. And I think I got X percent increase across the farm. You've got to have an untreated check. And in my opinion, you know, if we're going to be looking at a product and you truly want to know how it performs, we have to have an untreated check. Uh, the percent increase over the year, it could have been due to environment that particular year. Yeah, great great example. I mean, there's it's hard not to get excited in the growing season when we get a response to a product and we want to just go out and treat every acre. But we need to um, maintain some discipline that 
if we do see something that gets a great response, is to leave that untreated check within the field, no matter if it's just one planter pass or one sprayer pass through that field. Now, granted, I'd like to have some bigger areas and maybe some more untreated checks than just one pass through the field. Absolutely, yeah. But we we got to maintain we maintain some discipline as well. Is it excited to get? Because I'm guilty. I I get pretty excited sometimes when I see good responses in season. And, and there's a I do believe there's a threshold there. You know, growers in in my area are convinced that fungicides work, and they no longer want to test versus an untreated. So I think there are products where we're in an, an arena that. Now we're comparing product efficacies, you know, which one's going to be the best for my operation. So in that instance, you know, maybe we treat the whole farm, but still you, you've got your baseline standard program and that's your check essentially now. It's not untreated. It's now a product. That's your check. And now we're comparing that to your new improved product. Yep. And then um, probably one last note I would like to m- maybe mention about how to set up a good on-farm discovery is is that um, after you've, you know, after the season's over with and you've analyzed all the data, it's a good idea to make a plan of how we're going to move forward. Are, does this need to be continued to be tested? Or if you've tested a couple of years, I think it, I think in too many times we get caught up and we just like to test things and, and then fail to implement it. Yeah, fail to implement and, and we're missing out on some great return on investment of all the hard work we've done. And so um, I think we need to have that in our mindset that whether this product fails or it succeeds, we need to move forward with either plan A or plan B. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, a final point would be that we have all these products coming to marketplace, especially when we get into an area of, you know, say $5 corn and $12 beans. I, you know, I don't want the markets are today, but uh, great opportunity for some cash flow here. And there's a bombardment of products, but we talked about it earlier on. If we're not addressing the basics of agronomy, those may get convoluted and lost in in the data. Yep, definitely. So it, it always makes it a lot more attractive to try some of these products when we do have good uh, elevator prices. So there again, we need good sound agronomy. And that is another part of our uh, an important function here at LIFS that, um, that Craig and I were trying to provide for our growers is to take away or, you know, sift through the fluff to, you know, what products are going to be good sound agronomy products and that are going to provide the best return on investment, whether it's $3 corn or $8 corn. Um, we, we still need good sound agronomy. Now, granted, we all realize that, you know, when times get tough, there may be some things that, you know, we got to trim some fat off, but we still want good sound products that no matter what the yield environment or the pricing structure might be, um, they're going to return and, and make us money. Well, again, like you said, having have an action plan. So maybe identify those products that would be so-called fat. You know, the ones that maybe uh, in a good good price environment would be good to throw in there. But as we lose that price, you cut those products first. You know, they're maybe they're not bringing as much return. But like you know, I keep gravitating back to sulfur and boron because those are some of the foundations of what we're looking at and addresses the basics of agronomy. I mean, those are those. Crops need those nutrients. We do not have them in the soil. And as we go into these higher thresholds, it's uh, not being provided by the soil. So I think the returns on those products are profound. And even if we go into a low pricing situation, those aren't the first products that I would recommend cutting. Yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree better. So what do you think, Craig? Should we uh, give a little snippet into next week's episode? I think we should, Eric. What do you want to talk about? Well, it's maybe not necessarily what I think needs to be talked about, What uh, maybe necessarily what needs to be talked about. And I think that is starter fertilizers. 
I couldn't agree more. I'm getting a lot of questions of the you know last couple months. Yep. So definitely. So in next week's episode, we will cover the kind of the uh, do's and don'ts of a of a good starter program. What are some good products to maybe implement, and maybe some products that are watchouts that you know aren't suited for a starter fertilizer program. And from there, then how that grower might be able to implement those practices into their operation. That sounds great. Guys, thanks for joining us on our first launch episode of Field Trials Unleashed, where we're going to continue talking about on-farm discovery. And and be sure to listen for next week's episode where we talk about starters.